0: Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. You are listening to part two of our in-depth look at Please Sir, and uh, we have already covered quite a lot of ground, so if you haven't listened to part one yet, please do go back and do that first. We are looking specifically at Series 2, Episode 13, Dress Circle, if you'd like to watch along. But we have already looked at a lot of the major characters, and some of the actors even as well. We're going to go into a lot more detail, though, including the follow-on, the sequels, and what became of the kids of Fen Street later on in life. So, let's get back to class, starting now.
1: So they're, they're playing this game and Pricey walks in, having just seen the girls, shaking like a leaf he is. And at that point, Doris comes in, Miss, Miss Ewell comes in and she starts roasting Hedges. Like it's his fault because these two immodest young Huzzies, as she refers to them, are wearing these dresses. <laughs> and, and, and you know, Hedges, who's not even seen them yet, but he's responsible for them because he's their teacher. Yeah. But, what I like about this is Hedge's is kind of... His immediate reaction is, you know, he's a liberal, he's a modern man, he's trying to do the right thing. So he sort of wants to give the girls the benefit of the doubt. Obviously, there's a little bit of a, a, a double entendre. Well, I'd like to take a good look at those dresses first, Miss Yule. I bet you would. <laughs> but, 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 you know, the point is that he's trying to, you know, he's trying to do the right thing. They might not be decadent, they might just be modern. And he's going to be down with that because he's down with the kids, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so then the, the, this is going to play out. So the very next scene, we go back to the classroom... This is very much uh, of its time, this this opening bit of this scene, because we've got Maureen and Sharon, they're wearing their dresses, and they're literally standing at the front of the classroom, twirling and posing, while all the boys <laughs> in the class essentially salivate and leer. <laughs> handsome. 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 That's <laughs> handsome, yeah. But they, they are there dressed
0: up to show off, like that's the kind of the deliberate, they're not usually that bad. <laughs> that's the thing, I say the
1: boys are treating them like pieces of meat, but... They love it. They do love it. That is what they are doing. <laughs> no, that's what and, they're there for. and, 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 you know, that's not me saying, ah, oh, they love it. <laughs> you know, it, within the context of the script and the time, they do. That is exactly what they're doing.
0: So, can I ask you a question?
1: Yeah. What do you think of these dresses? <laughs> <laughs> well, f- from a 2023, uh, perspective, you know, you, they're not as racy as you might think because, yeah, uh, Sharon, for example, is just wearing a short dress. Mm. Maureen's is—it's—it's it's like she's wearing a swimming costume. It's, ve- a lot it, of it's it very revealing. Out. There's a lot of skin on show, and you yeah. can see—you know—without wanting to be too uh, immodest, you can see her knickers through this dress. You know, <laughs> like, so it's—it's it's very revealing. And I would have think—I would have thought in 1970 that would have been extremely revealing on television. I—I I, tell you what, I will say without wanting to pass too much judgment, they are not appropriate for school. I will <laughs> <Yeah>. confirm that. <laughs> Oh you prude.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Obviously this is the age of like the mini skirt and all this sort of stuff. Yeah. And if you see like things that you would think of as nineteen sixties fashion look twiggy and stuff like this, it doesn't feel that far removed from that. But of course that is the height of fashion you're going out dressed up to be seen, right? It's yeah. not what you wear to go to school. Yeah. But there is quite a lot in the show in general where the stuff they're wearing, they they wear some pretty short skirts sometimes. <laughs> And yeah, this—that was the fashion—and and Sharon's particularly what she's wearing. It seems a bit more glamorous than what she normally wears, but it doesn't seem any more revealing particularly. Mm. Um, I think because it is—it looks like it might be see-through. She got a kind of body stocking thing underneath, but it, you know, it looks like you can see right through it. I think that's perhaps yes. more what they think. Whereas what Maureen's wearing is very kind of like there's a lot on show there. Yeah. And Maureen's the chaste one. Maureen's the... She's still got the crucifix round her neck with this thing mm-hmm. on. So I, I'm not sure it quite tallies with
1: her character, but... The point of her in the plot is that they are wearing inappropriately skimpy clothing. So, so it has to be yeah. inappropriately skimpy. So they've, they've, they've gone for it. The costume designers. Yes. <laughs> so back to our classroom. And we're having this sort of objectification uh, of the girls. And then Potter comes in. And it's not really mentioned about the the dresses particularly. The purpose of this scene is that this theatre trip that we trailed earlier, Potter's mm-hmm. still not got his ticket. So mm-hmm. all the kids have got their tickets, but the, 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 they're now taunting him because he hasn't got this theatre ticket yet. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure I'll get it. The headmaster has probably got it. There was just a line here that I liked. Oh, I'm a great fan of culture, you know. Oh my word, yes, I've got uh, BBC Two. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I like that.
1: I tell you what, I tell you what, I don't want you to drop the clip in. I was quite happy with that impression. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll drop it in now just so we can compare. Yeah, okay. I'm a great fan of culture, you know. Oh, my word, yes. I've got BBC Two. (laughs) What was on last night, then? I didn't say I watched it. I said I've got it. Okay, so, uh, yeah, so we, we're setting up again, a little reminder, just just for those of you not paying attention, there's a theatre trip, and Potter doesn't have a ticket yet. Let's just leave that there. So, <laughs> no Potter way. leaves, and now Hedges comes in. So, we remember the last time we saw Hedges was in the staff room, and he's challenged Miss Ewell and said, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a good look at these dresses. Yeah, And so he makes them stand up, which <laughs> is you know, a little bit dodgy. Let's stand up in front of everyone and look at how sexual you are. Um, <laughs> and and then he sort of makes his decision. He does a little bit of a oh, 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 oh sort of thing and says, "Now, girls, I'm those dresses. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to take them off, hey, because everything's <laughs> got to be a double entendre." <laughs> but yeah, he makes them go home and change. So he he gave it a chance, but yes, look at that. That's not appropriate for school. We all agree. The the parting shot as Sharon leaves, she says, um, "She said, well, you should look in the mirror when it comes to fashion sense." And this kind of sets up a little bit of self-consciousness from Hedges that he looks scruffy, he looks fuddy-duddy. He looks like a teacher and mm. he likes to think he's down, he's cool and down with it. And so he, he asks the boys, oh, well, what, what do you think of how I look? Craven, you're you're dapper. What do you think? <laughs> I really like this. Craven comes, literally stands in front of him, looks him up and down and just takes him to pieces. It's great. <laughs> Shoes like gumbo, socks the wrong colour, baggy trousers, shirt like a tent, stains on your tie, not like a thimble, prehistoric collar, and a coat. What makes you look like the unchucker of Notre Dame.
0: This <laughs> <laughs> reminded me of an anecdote from David Barry's book. Actually, it's just will uh, give you oh, <laughs> give yeah. another little Perfect. mention to that. Uh, in that they're talking about when they were doing first sort of dress rehearsals. David Barry goes and gets this leather jacket on. He becomes Frankie Abbott and all that. And then he comes down and sees um, John Altenton dressed up. And he was like, oh, John, that is perfect. Mm-hmm. That jacket is just such, that is such boring teacher, crappy jacket. Like I haven't been to costume yet. What, yeah, what? What what found interesting about this scene was that Hedges is genuinely put out by this. He, he's, you know, he's like, oh, do you know what? They're right. I am scruffy,
1: (laughs) and uh, and I'm going to sort it out. Because he's a young man, like I say, he's in his early twenties, and he doesn't want to be an old man. And he's, you know, he is the oldest in that room, but he doesn't want. He wants to. He wants. He's got an ego. He wants to be seen as uh, a dynamic young man, not some old fuddy duddy like Smithy.
0: Yes. And later on in the series, we see a bit more of his personal life. He gets a a girlfriend who later becomes his wife. And again, it's one of those things where you forget how young he's supposed to be. Because first of all, the characters, the actor is older. But also because they're doing stuff like getting married... And like planning for kids and all that. And that's, in my head, is something you do when you're in your 30s, (laughs) not when you're 23. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, different times. That is just a generational difference, I think. But yeah, what I I found interesting, what comes straight after this, is is a little scene just before the ad break. We're in the corridor. There's a bit of comic business between Doris and the headmaster. Yeah. And there's a, a blackboard. And it's just a little bit of business. It doesn't really add much to anything. Mm, It's an odd one. And then Hedges comes out, and we have a little scene with him and Pricey. And all it does is reaffirm what we've just said and the fact that Hedges is like, Yeah, I'm going to do something about this. You could cut that bit out completely and just go into the next scene, and it would make sense. I had this thought.
1: Do you think that's a filler for time? That's what I was thinking.
0: Yeah. Is that we're in rehearsal, and actually, we've run in a minute short. Uh, We we need another page. I think it might be. I don't quite know how much that happened. It might even be that in the scripting process, they finished their plot and went. Mm, it's supposed to be twenty-three pages. We've only got twenty-two. Let's just
1: stick something in. Yeah, I'm with you. I think so. But I think so. it felt
0: completely added in, didn't it? It was fine. Bit of bit of comedy. It's fine. Business.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely fine. It's not a bad scene. But I think when you're when you're killing things by analysis like we are, then you sort of notice mm. this. So cut to after the break. Yes, and we got an exterior shot. Yeah, a bit more location shooting. What we have here is Hedges going into a clothes shop and buying some dapper clothes. But mm. it's kind of all done. There's no dialogue. So we sort mm. of see there's a, there's a bit of business as he's walking into the shop. Someone's coming out of the shop and gives him a look up and down as if to say, God, what are you doing? Look at the state of you. Then he goes in and he comes back out looking like Paul McCartney on the cover of Sergeant Pepper. So he's got mm. this sort of aqua blue velvet suit, a much more fashionable tie like Craven's. He looks like Austin Powers. He looks like Austin Powers. He looks ridiculous in 2023, but I, I think we're supposed to think he already looks ridiculous in 1969. Do you know what? I was going to say it would be like me coming out of a shop dressed like, I have literally no idea. I've got nothing. I don't know what, <laughs> I don't know what fashionistas are wearing right now. But you know, it'd be like wearing something yeah. that's on the catwalk, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. But I I think if you take Peter Craven, Malcolm McPhee's character, for example, that kind of tight cut suit, nice crisp tie great. and all that, Looks great. And it's kind of that plus. It's that, but in gaudy colours and, and particularly frilly shirt. Which is shirt what Austin Powers this. is.
1: Austin Powers is James Bond plus
0: exaggerated yeah it's it's yeah it's what's on the catwalk rather than what filters down into the actual kind of high street but it's the sort of thing jonathan ross would wear to a (laughs) an awards event
1: (laughs) yeah yeah that's a great so if you are be if you
0: are a sort of person who's deliberately ostentatious it's what you might wear
1: yeah yeah so that whole scene i I think it's interesting from a production point of view because it shows us what's happening it tells us something it moves the plot forward but there's no dialogue at all it's all very visual Mm -hmm. incidentally the music did you notice the music you've got the Presumably the BBC, or, you've got the BBC orchestra presumably at a few beers at lunchtime and they're playing dedicated Follower of Fashion, the Kinks song. Yeah, an, an orchestral version. But that song, that song's great. I mean, I love the Kinks, but th- I mean, that song is taking the mick out of fashionistas. You know, it's not, yeah. it, it, it's already doing that.
0: It's interesting, this little, uh, yeah, this location shooting. Obviously, we've already seen in this episode, they did location shoots with sound but they were they were very keen it's something they do time again these mm. montage non-diegetic sound pieces to, to of uh location shooting like there's a bit there's one where all the kids take a trip to the zoo and it's just yeah. like physical business with the animals you know and then yeah yeah they do quite a lot of that i don't know if it's it's a bit quicker and cheaper to shoot if you're not
1: bothering about sound.
0: <laughs> so yeah, you don't have to might, might set be as the sound simple up. as that.
1: So next scene, we get back to the classroom. Hedges arrives and he's, he's in his new uh, his new whistle. Nice bit of coming around this line here. <laughs> they they see him coming, so they deliberately kind of pretend not to notice. It's really you know, funny. Little, it's, it's, it's lovely stuff. It's lovely stuff that they can that they do that because he's he's so f- pleased with himself. He's so full of himself with his new <laughs> outfit, and they just pretend not to notice. It's great.
0: <laughs> I think it's really nice actually because he's. he's He's coming in and he's like a bit full of himself, but he's nervous about it. He's like, he knows that he's making a statement here. And he yeah. and he wants and he needs the validation, and yeah. so they finally go. All right, we now the whistle. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <come
1: on. laughs> yeah, so they acknowledge it. There's a sort of grudging respect there, which is good. I yeah. think that's like you know that that that's what he wanted. And then Sharon Sharon's still annoyed at being made to go home and get changed, but she sort of she she sort of gives him the once over. She literally stands up, looks him up and down, and gives her assessment. Again, too sexualized. Like, <laughs> like what do you think of this man? Assessing. Well, like- rate. The, he's your teacher you're 15 What a 15 year old girl um, assessing a, a, what
0: a guy looks like that's normal the fact that the teacher stands there and goes could you assess me sexually please exactly that, that's, that's inappropriate <laughs> but she approves and there's a lovely bit of timing where Doris yeah. Ewell walks into shot and sees him and is just like what the
1: <laughs> well no, the, the timing is because because Dennis has just said oh maybe Miss Ewell will send you home sir uh, no, 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 no. And then Doris bangs on the window. That's a great, great bit of business. She takes him outside the classroom. We can't hear what's happening. We can just see her pointing fingers and jabbing him in the thing. Then he's gone. He has to go home and get changed. <laughs> I'll tell you what, before we go on to the, the, the third act, if you like, like, why mm. don't we talk about the writers? Let's, uh, let's, oh, yeah. let's sort of take a break from the action. Esmond and Larby.
0: Yes, Esmond and Larby. And when we were discussing what shows to do for this series, the reason we're doing, please, sir, because I said... Like we haven't done Esmond and Larby yet, um, mm, and we I yeah. feel like we should do something Oh, we went for one of the early ones. But the reason I th- said that is because Esmond and Larby, it feels like they're this huge chunk of the world of sitcom. And, you know, we've, we've yeah. looked at a lot of writing partners before, and I just felt like we've, we've missed out there. And they are yeah. just very prolific writers, but actually coming to do the research and writing down a list of all the stuff they've done... I, I guess i hadn't really quite put it into a, a list form like that before but well what i found interesting about it was just the range of things they yeah, have not yeah. got a type <laughs> they have, they're doing all sorts of stuff so this was their first big success they did something just before this called room at the bottom uh which Derek mm. Guiler was in and then they in the mid 70s they really hit their peak with the good life i think that's probably their best yeah. remembered show yeah, that's
1: that's the one i if you said esmond and larby good life is the first thing that comes to mind yeah idea.
0: yeah but at the same time as that they were writing get some in do you remember that one no so get some in is set in the set in like a national service barracks an raf okay. a kids doing national service it's just the army game in the raf it's, <laughs> okay <laughs> it's
1: very very similar is david guyler the uh, sergeant major by any chance? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no no oh, okay uh, that's, it's most notable because it's where Robert Lindsay got his start. Ah, he was okay. kind of the, the, the one of the main characters in that, and then he went on to do Citizen Smith straight after. The major difference they have between that and the Army game is that the, the guys they've got to play the characters are like eighteen, nineteen instead of forty, uh, I see. Uh, which yeah. is you know <laughs> it's pretty good. <laughs> and then after that, ever decreasing circles was yep. uh, a, a, quite sure. a big hit with Richard Briers again. Brushstrokes with Carl Brush Holman. Brushstrokes with Jacko. Yeah, Carl Holman had. In the last series of Get Some In, Robert Lindsay left to go and do Citizen Smith. So Carl Howman came in and replaced him as the same oh, that's character. That's interesting. Uh, they just did an actor swap. So one of the later things they did was Mulberry with Carl Howman. I don't know if you're aware of Mulberry. I don't know that. Tell me about that. Carl Howman plays this character who comes in and is a, like a manservant to this ornery old woman. Yeah. And they develop a sort of unlikely friendship. But okay. the twist of it is that he is the son of death. And he is like training okay. up to be a death and so he's come to <laughs> kind of
1: grim reap this woman
0: but then they he kind of likes her too much he's too, too soft hearted for it but he's
1: also got a kind of like charming cockney manner about him is he cheeky is he cheeky cockney uh, geezer? Yeah. does he he's a cheeky uh, is he a bit of a ladies man death <laughs> i don't know as much
0: ladies man element to yeah, it i'm not sure, sure about that i've only watched a little bit of it
1: that sounds interesting actually
0: honestly i watched a bit of it and i was like i want to watch more of this and carl Hamman yeah. comes across really nicely and it is very charming he is charming i like carl Hamman. so esmond and larby just to come back to that um they met at school. They, they, like, they were friends from a young age. They were grammar wow, school okay. boys in South London in Clapham. Grew up together and then started writing together when they... The classic thing of, you know, working a day job, writing sketches and sending them into BBC radio shows and eventually getting enough traction to get a proper wage. Yes. Did a radio sitcom just before the first TV one in the six mid-60s and just worked and worked their way up. And then Bob Larby on his own, uh, or not with John Esmond at least, wrote uh, A Fine Romance and As Time Goes By, the two Judy, Judy Dench sitcoms. Yeah. He also wrote On the Up with Dennis Waterman in it and okay. yeah. My Good Friend with George Cole. I don't know if you are um, Oh, that, that rings one. a quiet bell. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Bob Larby wrote, did more than John Esmond. Uh, Esmond seemed to just write with him. And I got yeah. the impression, like, John Esmond is the sort of quiet, reserved one. Bob Larby's the one who'll come out and do an interview or go, and right. go out drinking after the recording and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah. Like, did they stay friends or was it a classic fallout? Like, wh- where are we with this?
0: As far as I know, they, they like I said, they've been known each other since they were kids, writing together for at least 30 years in terms of,
1: at the top mm-hmm. of the
0: like actual like work that's getting yep. out and probably 10 years before that as well john esmond retired and went to live in spain or some such place and bob labby carried on working a bit later but you know he retired when he was 65 it's not like he was you know unusually mm-hmm. young or anything yeah i don't think there's any bad blood there or anything i think it's all fine uh, they just aged out i guess they yeah they sort of, the credits stop in the sort of mid 90s and a bit of bit of theatre work in there as well a few plays but mostly they're sort of tv writers but what what i find interesting about this is watching the first series of please sir mm. which interestingly was a 45 minute format the episodes of 40 or, T V forty five mm. minutes, so it's like forty-two minutes with an ad break. Sure. What I found interesting about that first series is I didn't find it very funny. Mm. And not in a kind of, oh that look, I just see what this gag is and I don't find it funny. It didn't feel like it was particularly trying to be funny. It's very light touch. Yes. And when they think about it, if you think of something like The Good Life, I think that has that as well. If you To to use a contemporary, say, on the buses, that feels a lot more gags and silly situation slapstick. I think Esmond and Larby are a little bit more character-driven and mm-hmm. it's fairly light touch comedy by the, the episode we're watching here it's the end of series 2 i still don't get that many big laughs out of it no i know what you're saying they've really found their
1: feet by at this point in the first series it feels like they're still working that out does this go back to what you were saying about the potter character being out of place because yeah potter's character is that that sort of bigger cartoon would fit in on the bus's type of yes that that's how it's written maybe that's that's not what they're writing yeah, I think that might be it. And th- perhaps they're
0: trying to write that and it's not quite working. But then some of the other things, like I say, if you look at their output, they're very prolific. And there's lots of mm. things that I haven't mentioned here that did one series, two series, and have kind of been forgotten about. Yeah, There's a wide range of not just situations, but also tone. And there are some, uh, yeah. there are some things that I've just watched a few bits and pieces of that are a lot more comedic. And frankly, I don't think they work that well. Right. They, those are the forgotten ones.
1: Shall we return to our episode? We've got uh, a couple of scenes to go. So if you remember, Hedges had been sent home because he was dressed as a 60s dandy. And now we skip forward to the evening. So we start in the staff room and we got Price and Smithy sort of getting dressed for the theatre. They're in their suits. and, uh, And then Potter arrives. Potter arrives dressed in full white tie and he's got his military medals on. You know, he looks like he's, he literally looks like he's going to a reception at Buckingham Palace. His wife spent three hours starching his dicky. That's a good line. (laughs) Poor old Potter still hasn't got his ticket. It's now becoming sad. Like this is going to play itself out in a minute, but it's at this point where I'm like, Oh, this poor guy, look, he's got dressed up. I'm really genuinely feeling sorry for him now. So, now the head and Doris and Hedges arrive. So we've got all the staff here. And this is brutal. Potter's asking, where's my ticket? And the head says, well, we haven't got you one. And Doris says, Potter, you were never invited. Oh my God, just... <laughs> It's an absolute knife through his heart. That character, the poor the character, he's
0: a pompous kind of arrogant character. So we're supposed to be laughing at him being But I'm deflated. not. I
1: feel, ever so- I feel sorry <laughs> for him. He's been he's humiliated in front of all of the people he works with. It's, yeah. it's terrible. But they all hate him, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> because he's a dickhead. <laughs> well there's an interesting dynamic that happens now because hedges who is aggrieved at doris for having sent him home leans in to potter and he says oh there's loyalty for you potter and he's stirring it up you know he's really he's really trying to wind potter up so anyway everyone else leaves and we're left with just hedges and potter and they decide to have a drink uh pricey's got some hydrochloric acid in the labs oh no no drugs (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good late 60s reference. Um, but anyway, to, to, to cut to the chase, it turns out to be vodka, this hydrochloric acid. And- that has, by the way, you won't have seen this, but that's set up
0: in an earlier episode. Ah, where okay. Mr. Price kind of goes to Hedges like, oh, pass me that bottle of acid. Like, we'll have a little drink. And he's like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, I, I keep it. This yeah, is where I, is I keep it. Vodka. Because he's a functioning alcoholic and he's hidden alcohol around his workplace, which is a school. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've all done it. (laughs) Well,
1: (laughs) I haven't, Gareth. You have. (laughs) All all I'm saying is that if you work in a a bank, no one ever looks under the cistern in the toilets. (laughs) So anyway, look, cut to the chase. What we've got here is Potter and Hedges getting drunk together. And this is quite nice because, you know, they've been set up as antagonists from the very first episode. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're genuinely bonding here. There is a, there's a bit of bad drunk acting from Derek Guyler, but. You know, everyone does bad drunk acting. I can't really hold that against him. Yeah, they they have these occasional
0: moments of bonding between them um, mm. and it always kind of comes yeah. to nothing because we need them to be antagonistic again the next episode or whatever it is. But yeah. but yeah, it's like you were saying earlier, Potter is sort of set up as an antagonist and never quite reaches it because he doesn't have any real authority. He's just an annoyance. He's just a burr in the saddle yeah. of whoever
1: needs to get something done. I, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to stop you. That's a beautiful phrase. A burr in the saddle battle i I mean it's great i like it i'm not criticizing where have you got where's that come from i don't know i must have been watching a western or something
0: (laughs) so yes they get drunk together because you have to be drunk to express your emotions if you're a man that's that's a scientific fact so so we have to get them drunk together and then we sort of set up that they're going to go to the the theater anyway so we
1: cut now to the foyer of the theater
0: we cut to the foyer of a theatre, which is a
1: whole big set to create mm. and fill with a lot of extras for the this for the sake big, of this singing. A big yeah. production for essentially a, one visual punchline. No, yeah. two visual punchlines. We have two punchlines here. So mm. what we get is there's a little gag about Smithy saying, oh, things have changed since my day, and it's because he's been in the ladies' toilets. Very funny, very funny. Um, <laughs> the, the head buys a box of chocolates for Doris from a tout. <laughs> And they're display chocolates it's and he breaks her tooth. All very weird. Like, just a
0: throwaway gag. There's a line there that doesn't land where he says, oh, well, you know, you bought me supper, basically. So he's like, she's she's taking him out for dinner <laughs> before oh, the see. show. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't catch <laughs> But it that. just doesn't land at all. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't land in here when you, you watch it and you go, oh, that was a gag. And it just, the timing's slightly off or just something. Yeah. And again, I think that's down to production quality of let's get it done rather than let's get yes. it done well.
1: So the first sort of visual punchline here, 5C arrive, the class arrive, and they're all looking absolutely fabulous. We discover that Duffy's brother knows someone who runs a suit hire shop, and without really looking too much into how they've afforded to pay for all this, all, they all look great. They've got black tie, they've got dinner jackets, the girls have got sort of um, ball gowns on. They, look, they genuinely look fabulous. It's great. A, a nice kind of punchline to the episode. But it's kind of a nothingy thing. They like just walk in and walk past, and they're like, oh, yeah. they've dressed appropriately for the theatre. Yeah, there's okay. no 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 dialogue. They just in they go. <laughs> so then, basically, the the foyer empties. Everyone goes into the theatre, and we and we think the episode's finished. And then we get the the final punchline, which is Hedges arriving in this ridiculous white tie attire that's way too small for him. And of course, he's wearing Potter's suit all the mm. way up to his ankles. Now this is John Alderton's turn to do some bad drunk acting. Now, yeah, and and the final punchline is Potter arrives in the dandy Paul McCartney, Sergeant Pepper suit that Hedges was wearing earlier. Much hilarity ensues. Well, not that much. Um, It's it's not a damp squib ending,
0: but it's not a big finish either. And... I've noticed that quite a lot in this show, watching all the episodes. Just how often something would happen, and it's kind of like, oh, well, this is the inciting incident, some, and it's we're just about this is setting something up, and then the yeah. theme tune kicks in, and it's like, oh, that's the end of the show. Right, it, it, right. There's a lot of like half half baked ideas that never quite come through to fruition or we -hmm. we do something with the character and then it's like okay like what are the consequences of this going to be and then it's the the show ends Uh, there's a lot of that and I it's that's down to the writing obviously And I just feel like structurally, a lot of the writing doesn't work that well. It's not terrible, but there's just bits and pieces that aren't working. And I I find less and less of that as we go along. And bits of Watch of the Fen Street Gang, I feel, have less of that. And I think it might be as simple as Esmond and Larby getting better at writing uh, for a 25-minute format.
1: Like you said, this was their first big thing, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, you know, they were more sketch writers, as everyone was back then. Yeah, It could be as simple as that. It might be that they're just getting to know the characters a bit better. We'll talk a little bit... Bit about what came afterwards but have like in the Street gang you have six characters not 13 so it's just yeah straight away more straightforward
1: it, it occurs to me as we finish our episode i'm just thinking back to our discussion and we we didn't really talk about john alderton we sort of you yeah. know we talked about hedges but tell me tell me more about john alderton because he is the he's the star of the show he's the number one on the cast list
0: well let me ask you this actually
1: what you look at john alderton what what do you know him from do you know what Uh, This is a a shocking thing to say, but the the, the thing that I think of when John Alderton is he's married to Pauline Collins, who was in (laughs) Sherlock Holmes. That's like literally the first thing I think about him. And I don't really know him. I I consider, I think of him as a a, a dramatic actor rather than a comedic actor. But like, I can't tell you, oh, he was in such and such a, you know, like Robbie Coltrane was in Cracker. Like, I haven't got a John Alderton role that I associate him with. I, that, uh, the reason I asked that is because I think I was the same.
0: I kind of knew his face and I knew the name, and I just couldn't quite place yeah. it anywhere. This was what made his name, and obviously, and it was comedy, but he it wasn't like he was a comedy actor, or wasn't setting out to be, you know, he hmm. trained at RADA, and he did all the legit stuff. He he did do some other sitcoms, he did shows with Pauline Collins, uh, you know, they did quite a few things, as a couple, including yeah. sitcoms, uh, No Honestly was one of them, just after this, in the 70s.
1: 1972, he did a sitcom called My Wife Next Door. Okay. It sounds like a very, a very 1970s modern domestic arrangement. Well, it's, um,
0: it's with Hannah Gordon. Yeah. And the opening episode is they're divorcing. And so they've been yeah. living apart for two years, so they can divorce. And so he decides to get away from it all. Now it's all done, move to the country. And he moves in. And then, oh, look, there's someone moving in next door. And it turns hey. out to be her. So they're he freshly is. divorced and they're living That's next door. That's a great to each setup. Other. Hilarity ensues, but that I think what he's really remembered for as a dramatic actor, which came straight after this, was upstairs downstairs,
1: ah, okay. where he was the show. He was the chauffeur. See, I remember when I was a kid, upstairs downstairs being. I never watched it, but I remember it being on, it being huge, culturally massive. Everyone was talking about it, type of thing. But I was, I think, I was too young to to watch it, you know. And I, I,
0: when I was looking at, if you look at John Alderton's career, it was very big in the late sixties and in the seventies, and then he doesn't exactly disappear, but he's definitely kind of stopped working a lot earlier than one would normally do. So, mm. if if you know what I mean, um, and he's obviously doing theatre and stuff like. He was the voice of Fireman Sam. Did you know that? <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, it is work, but. It does feel like he made a deliberate and conscious choice to step away rather than the work wasn't there. I don't know if I'm reading that correctly. Mm. Uh, I don't know why that is particularly, but the work definitely slowed down. He was a big star in the 70s. To, to go back to um, David Barry's book that I was reading, he was talking yeah. about John Alderton in that, and how come the later series of Please Sir, he, and this is not quite what David Barry says, I'm sort of reading between the lines a little bit here, but it felt to me like John Alderton just wanted to get out of there, fulfil his contract, turn up, do it, get out, because I want to move on and do other things.
1: Well, this is what happens, isn't it, in the fourth series. So we, we talked about, we're treating these first three series as our canon, and then that fourth series, we get a whole new class. Hmm. and is it in the second episode John Alderton resigns and leaves the school or Mr. Yeah, Edges so, so
0: he's by. in a f- yeah he's in a few episodes just to sort of set it up
1: the way they do it is like oh
0: 5c have gone and I've been given a new class and I just don't care about them I, I made such yeah. a bond with the
1: first class I ever taught I've that I'm never gonna for teach for one year more. and I think I've I think I've done now <laughs>
0: yeah and so there's a bit of business where he goes off to be a student again he's going to go study psychology i think it is or something like that right in a very kind of realistic oh i don't quite know what i'm doing with my career do i want to do this kind of thing but it's not explored enough to really be interesting but it is just let's we're getting him out of there and the fourth series you know and and like, let's face, you know, I was saying like the first three series here, I, I, I wasn't particularly enamored by the show. I, I, I didn't find it very funny. And I have too many characters. I thought the characters were quite one dimensional. Yeah. But that pales in comparison to the fourth series, which is really tough mm. to get through. And it's like
1: a 21 mm. episode series as well. Well, you sent me two episodes of that. And I must say, I don't know. The thing is, right, I, I developed quite an affection for the characters. And then suddenly mm. there's all these new kids and I didn't like them. And so yeah. the, I, I I have to acknowledge an element of this is different, therefore I don't like it, which is not is yes. not a good enough reason to dislike something. So so it's quite encouraging that my judgment that I made after watching two episodes you share after watching twenty one.
0: <laughs> yeah, and even with that, they don't settle on the new kids like very quickly. They mm. they establish some kids that are like his new class, and then they bring in a whole bunch of other kids like eight episodes in. And then yeah. they're used much more sporadically than our previous children. So it, we never get the same af- affinity with them. Also, they're yeah. much less likable. And they are positioned as being very unlikable to be antagonists to our teacher characters, as opposed yes. to in the first series where they are ultimately, we like them, you know? Um, and they're, they're, again, quite poorly drawn characters. And so we focus much more on the staff. And we we keep the same staff, apart from Hedges who leaves. We have all our other teachers stay, the headmaster and Pricey, etc. And we get a replacement for Hedges, don't we? Kind of. And we're several episodes in by this point, but Mm. they bring in another character called David Fitchett Brown.
1: Do you know what what this reminded me of? As as I watched the episode where he's introduced, it reminded me of the episode of Heidi High where Clive is introduced, because he's got that same playboy attitude. Yeah. Yeah. Replacing a steadier character that we all had some affection for. I, I instinctively don't like this guy.
0: Yes. I and, and it really feels like we need another young dynamic character, but we'll go with something a bit different. Yeah. And honestly, that's it's that episode is so difficult to watch. It's such a cringy episode. Mm. So it, it's played by Richard Warwick. And not to, I don't think it's his fault. I think it's just the character. But it feels like he's auditioning to be a wacky Doctor Who
1: what you doing? That's a gun that is! Yeah. I killed 25 kids with this at my last school. God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Oh, God. Alright I didn't, but it kept you quiet, didn't it? <laughs> Six wives of Henry viii I got Jane in. Wrong! And? Wrong. Yes. That's spot on, Alan. That is exactly what it is. That's really It's good. just like, ah, uh, it's like the way he's trying to ingratiate himself
0: with the kids. And it's just like, oh, it was really cringy. It was really like, ugh, it was difficult to watch. And then he settles in a bit and he's in like eight, six episodes, I think, maybe seven mm. or eight, something like that. As this kind of principal teacher, and then he just disappears. Well, he, well, it is explained why he goes, but he was obviously oh. like just in for a six-episode run, and then they were like, um, okay, we're not going to carry on with him. Well, let's bring someone else in. Huh. And then there's another character who's brought in, who is not as well-developed by any means, but has a very similar voice to him. And I feel like they'd already written some scripts with that character so okay. they thought Well, we don't want to completely rewrite these <laughs> I don't know what the story there is but I feel like that character was supposed to be in the rest of the series and then he left
1: so the problem with the fourth series I'm extrapolating from what you've said here it's all over the place we've got principal characters are changing and getting chopped it's around. a total mess yeah and they don't know what
0: it is they don't know what they're trying to do with it Esmond and Larby do do write some of the episodes but not all of them they handed over writing duties to some other people because they were also writing the first series of Fen street gang at the same time so they were mm. busy
1: what about the what about the kids because the, again the episodes i watched I, I did not like the kids first thing no. it looked like the actors were a bit younger which is good a little bit yeah but they they lacked the charm and again i only watched a couple so is that accurate? Yes. Yes. And I think it's, a, a, a,
0: a, like I say, I, they are used as antagonists rather than
1: yeah. what
0: we have in the first show, which is we're going to sympathize with, ultimately empathize mm. with these kids and they're set up in a different way and used in a different way. But that means you just don't like them at all. And one of them, one of them is Indian, Gareth. Oh. In East London? The character is Indian, uh, or oh, of no. Indian descent, oh, no. of course, with a British accent. No. Now I'm not. Uh, all I'll say is the actor who plays this Indian character is called Darina Pavlovich,
1: and I'll <laughs> let you make. I'll let you make your own. That, I wasn't expecting that assumptions. <laughs> I was expecting John Smith or something, but. Oh dear.
0: Uh, yeah. So what's interesting? She's set up as this Indian character, and the whole dynamic is her and this other girl. And the other girl is like, "Oh, you're so exotic and beautiful. I wish I was like you." <laughs> and she's just like, oh, I'm just normal, I don't care. And she's got a British accent, you know, she's got Indian parents, which she's sure. brought up in, in, so she's sort of second generation. But in the first time we see her, like, there's definitely, it's not boot polish, but there's some fake tan going on there. And mm. I think by later episodes, they don't even bother with that. It's just okay. it's just a Eastern European s- skin colouring <laughs> So, uh, right, yeah. <laughs> okay. Near of enough. Time, but there you go.
1: So, okay, so we, we don't like series four of Police Sir, which we are saying no. is not part of our uh, our canon. What about Fen Street Gang? So Fen Street Gang is the other species. That's where the, the kids from 5C have left school, grown up and got on with their lives. I've watched one episode of this. You watch them all. So tell me a bit about Fen Street Gang. We
0: established the six characters. Now, first of all, first thing to note, two of the actors have changed.
1: Yes, Yes, thank you. I did notice this quite clearly.
0: So, Penny Spencer, who plays Sharon, decided to leave, and she's not in the film spin off either, uh, which was made immediately after this series so after series three between series three and the Fen Street Gang starting yeah okay so she left then and again I, I saw Penny Spencer talking uh, recently about this and she didn't give a very mm. straight answer but the general idea was she'd had enough of it she wanted to move on and I think there was some element of her wanting to go off and start a family and that sort of thing but she got she'd got a little bit of other work so maybe yeah. she was just thinking okay time to move on and that other work didn't really develop into anything but that's what okay. it is so she just decided to move on Carol Hawkins comes in to replace her. Pretty much like-for-like replacement and does a really good job, actually. Same character, different. Yeah, yeah. So she's in the film and then she comes into the series as well. And because that character then develops quite considerably over that period, Mm -hmm. does a perfectly good job. The other character who changes, well, the other actor who changes is Peter Craven. So Malcolm McPhee was contracted to do a a theatre run. He was doing something. So he couldn't do the job. And so they brought in Leon Vitali to replace him. But only for the first series...
1: Ah, right, okay, because the episode I watched, yeah, Malcolm McPhee was in it. That that makes sense.
0: So only for the first series, and then Malcolm McPhee was available for the second series, so they brought him back. And as opposed to Carol Hawkins, Leon Vitale never fits the character. It just never quite works. It doesn't feel like... I don't know Leon Vitali.
1: Who's who's
0: he? He's not a big, really well-known actor or anything. Actually, it, just interesting little side note about him. He's most famous because he, he worked for Stanley Kubrick and kind of basically became Stanley Kubrick's personal assistant. Oh, okay. You know, Sally Kubrick famously a man who did not like other people particularly, and sure. but this, for some reason they connected, and so it was like he, he was, became his, his little personal assistant. Uh, mm. But here's an interesting thing, and this is what I've learned from reading David Barry's book again. Uh, when they started the Fen Street Gang series, they, they were going to do 21 episodes, and they contracted the actors for 16 episodes. So they knew straight up, they weren't going, they weren't going. we have our six characters and we're going to use them all in every episode. They ah. were going to have episodes where some actors weren't in it, some characters okay. weren't in it, which I think is really interesting, given that the previous series has, what, 12, that's 13, 13 regular characters and they're in every episode. And you know, maybe there's a financial reason behind that. <laughs> if you're only contracted for 16, you only have to pay them for 16 weeks and you sure. can spread it out. But that's a knock on effect that, it's a sitcom without a situation. It's six characters who have their own six lives going on. Well, one of them are a couple. And so uh-huh. you can build a story around any one of those in any given week. Sure. Gives you plenty yes. of fodder for stories. And you can draw your other characters in because they're all friends. But it mm. means you don't really have a central position, like a school play or a workplace or a home. What is the situation? Um, and so it feels a little bit loose because
1: of that. Well, the episode that I watched had Frankie and Dennis in it. Basically, they went to a strip club. That's the that's the gist of it. But yeah, Eric, Peter Cleal wasn't in that episode. I don't think Liz Gephardt was in that episode. Mm. Uh, and then the other two were just, you know, briefly, they sort of came and went. Yeah, that's
0: how it works. And there are episodes where they're all in it and they do a big group thing. It sounds more
1: like a soap than a sitcom. You know, where you've got different houses and... Yeah. You know, they, they occasionally come to the pub and talk to each other, but different families doing different things. Yeah, you're right there. In terms of situation,
0: There probably is. Not not in tone. It's definitely comedic in tone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there are some overarching kind of plot lines that run along. So Peter Craven gets a job as like a runner for a, a, a gangster, a sort of Mr. Uh-huh. Big, played by George Baker. And that, in turn, span off, spun off. Spun. <laughs> called, called Bowler. Uh, Which was a sort of following that gangster character. Oh,
1: fascinating! Spin off of a spin off is that? That must have happened before, but I can't think of another example of a spin off of a spin off. It definitely happens. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, perhaps not often, but
0: yeah, certainly it's happened. Mm. And they just did one series of that as a spin off, and it never quite caught on.
1: So, uh, in terms of legacy, we've we've talked about the two different spin offs. Now, I'm also conscious that we haven't really talked about the actors. Of the six kids. You know, we talked about the fact they were too old. But uh, you can give me more detail here. But my perception here is that this was kind of the, you know, this is the top thing on their CV. Yes, I think that is correct.
0: Peter Denyer is perhaps, you know, he was in Agony and Dear John as regular characters in that. But arguably they are less well remembered. But they were decent good shows at the time. We got Peter Cleal, he he, you know, did occasional work. He became an agent, actually. He set up an agency with his wife, who was also an actor.
1: Can I say the thing that Peter Cleal was in that you have to be exactly my age to know? He was in a, a tunes advert. <laughs> Where yes. he plays a man with a blocked nose who says, uh second class ticket to Nottingham please. And then he comes back <laughs> after he's had his tune His second class ticket to Nottingham, please. <laughs> like that that is right in my I, I must have seen that advert two hundred times. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, that, yeah, that's it. You got He's still working. And then later on kind of dropped the acting bit and just became an agent. And as far as I can tell, according to their website, Pelham Associates, mm. they are still the agents of that organization. He'd be 79 now. Okay. As it looks on the website, they're still running that agency. And here's some information that, again, I've got from the book by David Barry. He, because after the police Sir bit, he talks a lot about what he did in his career afterwards. And a lot of that was with Peter Cleal, Malcolm McPhee, particularly, and Peter Denyer. some of that as well. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they did a lot of theatre work and okay. Malcolm McPhee seemed to get into the production side of things. Peter Denyer became a director and writer, particularly in Pantomime. We we knew that from our Dear John episode. He, he churned about five pantomimes a year scripts <laughs> uh, but yeah. did a lot of directing as well and they they did like a sketch show called the lads from fen street peter Cleal, malcolm mcphee and david barry mm-hmm. uh, and it was just a sketch show but they were selling it on low you remember these guys from <laughs> the police sir but the, the characters they yeah. were playing were not police sir characters right okay penny spencer doesn't really do too much in in the David Barry book, they they talk about he talks about doing a play with Penny Spencer, and she was too quiet for theatre work.
1: Oh, really? That's interesting.
0: Even in the recording of the show, it was always like boom mic trying to get in as close as possible because she was just so quiet. And she's talk, uh-huh. they're talking about doing a theatre show, and they had another actor just off the side of stage doing the lines at the same time to
1: project <laughs> because wow. otherwise
0: the audience wouldn't hear.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I mean, that are. seems like a that seems like a problem for an actor.
0: Yeah. Uh, Liz Gebhart again just went on to do other the odd sitcom appearance here and there and other acting work but nothing too major. Liz Gebhart and Malcolm McPhee both died very young in their 50s. Oh really? Both, both of cancer I think. And then Peter Denyer was only about 60 when he died. He was not particularly mm-hmm. old mm-hmm. either. There was apparently uh, and th- again this is coming from the David Barry book there was there was an idea for another spin-off mm. where we see Duffy and Sharon who are now married that they move into a middle-class neighbourhood and they're a bit out of place. Oh yeah, nice fish out of water. And, and it, nothing came of it, but there were certainly discussions about it. So there was, there was, you know, attempts to it. But even even in the third series of Fen Street Gang, which they only did eight episodes, Liz Gebhardt and Peter Denyer are not in that. Those characters okay. are sort of, it's written that they've just gone off to do other things. Okay. But uh, Liz Gebhardt got pregnant, so she couldn't do it. Peter Denyer had kind of, he had something else going on in theatre. So they were, they were all moving on by the end, and it was just sort of came to an end, really. David Abbott did probably more work as a writer. This is the odd sitcom appearance. One of the more notable appearances later career, he's he's in the George and Mildred film, which was made in 1980. Uh, he plays a character in that which he was casting because they'd written it and it was like, This is really like Frankie Abbott out of Please Sir. <laughs> Let's get David Barry to play it. <laughs> so it's like, okay, that's fair enough. A little bit typecast, maybe. And and he does he did a lot of writing in theatre and um he did a fair
1: bit of panto in his time as well, of course of course. You said earlier that he, David Barry had written a couple of novels as well.
0: Yeah quite a few actually and that just seems to be what he's been doing for the last 20 years. People
1: often dismissively say oh that comedian's just oh he's written a book. Like it's hard writing a book. <laughs> I, I, I'm yeah. full of admiration for people who write a book. You know I'm not talking about ghostwriting, I'm talking about someone who's actually slaved away at the typewriter. It's not yeah. easy that. Yeah and then to find a public someone who'll publish it for you as well. Mm. Here's the interesting
0: thing that was the real kind of legacy here from David Barry is that obviously many years later in 2016 he Wrote a stage show, a sort of a fringe show called The Many Lives of Frankie Abbott. I like the sound of this. It came from the idea of like, what was Frankie Abbott doing now? If Frankie Abbott's in his 70s, he's in an old people's home he's still making stuff up and he's still doing <laughs> it and i i haven't that was a, a fringe show he did at edinburgh fringe and all that sort of stuff it's him and one of the characters who's the carer who was played by linda Regan uh, of ah, heidi high yeah. he, there's our link fame. yes so that was like who by the way also writes detective novels and is churning out novels if you're interested in linda Regan's, i did not know that uh, output that is interesting
1: so can i ask you on in a situation like that obviously david barry played the character on the television But he doesn't own the character. Are you allowed to? Like, could could I do a one-man show where I pretend to be Ted Bovis in a retirement home? If it's an original script, yes. There's no intellectual
0: property there? Well, recently this has been a bit of an issue because you know those those companies who do like the Only Fools and Horses dinner thing show yes. or yes. uh, Faulty Towers, Towers kind of thing—they've been running for years, and it's mm-hmm. we're using the characters, but it's not original plot. So yeah. you know, as long as you're not using, so plot, they're writing their okay. own script. Yes, and but recently there was a there was definitely some kind of court case, and yeah. they lost that. Um, I'm not quite sure of all the details.
1: I, th- I think that the only detail I can remember is that John Cleese has got another divorce to pay for. <laughs>
0: in <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> that sort of show if you're paying a big chunk of the money out to someone else you, you, you're not going to be able to run it it's just not affordable no. so i'm not sure exactly legally speaking but certainly he went and did this frankie abbott show obviously i haven't seen the show because it was a, a live show i wasn't aware of it at the time but they've done a few filmed bits just kind of promo material there's david barry there and he's 75 years old mm. but he just clicks into this frankie abbott character and it's exactly how it was and it's, it's fascinating That's to funny. watch actually and he's just he goes straight in to it i'm waiting for a bus and i think
1: it's time for you to go home don't no, you i'm i'm off to edinburgh and i to do my show to talk about my adventures yes, yes thank <laughs> you of course you are but perhaps you should do that after lunch after lunch yes at the home
0: and he's written it as well so obviously it's, it's done from a place of love it's it's done from a obviously an affectionate place as far as i know he's not he's not touring that anymore you know the guy's 18 but i met him the other day and he's in fine <laughs> fettle you know he's in he seemed he's he's perfectly perky shape so uh sure really he wanted to. Can I make another couple of notes? Just a couple of little things that I got from the David Barry book. Yeah, go on. A couple of things that really interested me. First of all, he'd done a bit of research and put up some numbers of viewing figures. And in their third series, they got seven and a half million viewers and were outperforming the likes of Steptoe and Son and Dad's Army uh, okay. in the weekly ratings. You know, which is like not to be sniffed at. I, just, I thought that was really good. It gives you an indication just how big this show was, because it's certainly not remembered in the same way as Dad's Army and Steptoe and Son. Yeah, yeah. And another little, a uh, uh, little anecdote there from it was. So we know when we did the opening credits, and we've got all the kids there, and they're doing things. Mm-hmm. In the third series, the opening credits is just like their names on a wall. It's like done as if it's graffiti. Okay, and that's because they've they've worked out due to some sort of contract small print or whatever it was the the opening credits they were they were paid separately for it so every time it got used they were paid again as a, as a different thing oh, i see as opposed to being under their normal contract okay. and so the third series they were right we're not using it then <laughs> so,
1: because they demanded to be <laughs> paid for it that is interesting that is interesting can i actually you've just made me think of um we talked about the opening credits I want to talk about the end titles. This is a note I made. So the end titles are, it's basically, it starts with a still, like a class photo, a school photograph with them in front of a brick wall. And then we get close-ups of each individual with their name, you know, the actor's Mm -hmm. name. Can you remember when you were at school and you had a photo taken? Yeah. Did you have a class photo with every teacher in the school and the school (laughs) caretaker (laughs) alongside?
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes and we were arranged all the pupils were arranged uh in how in how often we talked yes. <laughs> yeah yeah that's right that's right <laughs> let me let me just wrap up a couple more things from the david barry book which again just so just to repeat yeah. what we said at the in the first half of this show David Barry wrote a sort of professional memoir called "Police Sir: uh, The Official History." David Barry played Frankie Abbott, mm-hmm. and it's just a really interesting look at that kind of era uh, and what it was like to be a you know someone who'd risen to fame pretty quickly and then had to kind of get on with a career. Uh, but then looks at the Police Sir uh, story particularly as well. And, and and David Barry, interestingly, he started his writing career with an episode of Fen Street Gang. He okay. came up with an idea for the character of Frankie Abbott. Like, well, like, let's explore this. And they went, okay, write as a synopsis. And he did it. And, the, and then he wrote the episode. That's and cool. that sort of started his career. And so, and so the other thing that he talks about in the book, which I find really interesting, because it's the sort of thing people don't talk about, is the money and the sort of the behind the scenes kind of thing of like how all that works. But mm-hmm. from a historian point of view, I find it really fascinating. And he was yeah. saying in 1983, Please Sir was repeated... Uh, which, you know, didn't get a lot of repeats. ITV didn't do so much repeats. Mm. And they, as the actors, got paid £300 per episode. Oh, in 1983 point. money. Oh, great. Which is a nice little chunk of change, isn't it? It is. I'm
1: i am pleased to hear that.
0: And then he was saying in the 90s, they repeated it on like UK gold or something and they got a yeah. lot less. <laughs> well, <laughs> sure. But, but I guess that's just how the agreements work or yeah. however well, That's the however audience that goes. size, isn't it?
1: Yeah. But you make the point there about it being repeated on gold and you got a lot less. Like if that's on a streaming service, you're not going to get paid anything like the same, are you?
0: No. No. But that's why things aren't on iPlayer. Like, Why not just shove everything on there and we can watch it whenever we want? Because, because they have to pay for it. You have to pay. Yeah. yeah. And it might not be a lot, but it's going to be enough that it matters.
1: Well, do you know what? I think we have washed, rinsed, and wrung out, please, sir, pretty well. I think we've talked about we've talked about the cast and the characters and hmm. the spin-offs and i think we've covered it so what's your what's your summarizing thoughts about please uh the first three series
0: yeah i mean honestly i didn't particularly care for it we've, we've talked fairly positively i think yeah <laughs> but i i didn't find it very funny was the first point mm. uh, and like i said earlier i don't think it's even trying to be that funny yeah i find the characters to be quite one-dimensional it, structurally it's not that strong either and there's too many characters i didn't think it was that good and I don't really get why it was so popular at the time Mm. perhaps it's just speaking to a particular demographic or something like that i was interested that when i watched fen street Gangs, that was kind of hit and miss as well we have got different writers and different characters and situations and all that but when it worked it worked and i feel like i can i'm seeing esmond and larby's writing developing which is which was Mm. very interesting
1: so you just said i didn't care for it and then listed several reasons why and Mm. none of those reasons i will disagree with but i quite liked it. I I quite enjoyed it. On a superficial level, I enjoyed hanging around yeah. with it I, i'm not saying it was groundbreaking comedy but i it was good it was good it was fun mm. and once i'd got to know the characters which did take a little while i felt invested in them i i i enjoyed them doing their one-dimensional thing each week
0: well i think that's a lot because i think that first series it is really finding its feet um, yeah. and it's the second series by that point you yeah. sort of start to know who the characters are a little bit i think that it definitely is not just you i think that is the show sure and as always, this is perhaps a, an effect of me watching 50 episodes of this stuff sure. over the course of a few weeks. I, I do think that's a problem. Obviously, you know. that has an effect. And let me tell you that Series 4 was a slog <laughs> to get through. Mm-hmm. It was not good. And it made me have a much better appreciation for the previous series. Yes, Gareth there was of course a film spin-off which we haven't really talked about but that's that because we always do a little uh, bonus well, episode Well we have a track
1: film? record don't we I I haven't <laughs> yeah I haven't seen this film yet I know it exists so I guess at some point we will watch that with Saul and uh, and talk about that so in the we'll, future we'll, bonus we'll come episode. to that I will say I think it's not a
0: bad interpretation of screen to film um, that would be my just little sneak preview there
1: it's not it's not a bad <laughs> Well, I'll tell you what we should, speaking of future episodes, we should tell our listeners what we're doing next.
0: We're going to do Game On.
1: Game On! And we're hitting straight into my sweet spot of, I actually remember
0: watching this when I was a kid, Yeah. Uh, yeah. which I'm sure it you does, do, do as well. doesn't very often, yeah. Uh, yeah, so we're, we're, we're sneaking up into that territory.
1: So yeah, something completely different. I'm looking forward mm. to that. Well, I watched it as it went out, but not since, so I'm, oh, yeah, I'm Ooh. looking forward to that. <laughs> that's going to, yeah. Exactly. things have changed,
0: Gareth, in mm-hmm. the 25 20, years since. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, thanks to everyone for listening. If you would like to follow us on social media, please do. We're on Twitter and Instagram at BritComPod. Or we're on Facebook. If you just search for British Sitcom History Podcast, you'll find our group.
0: If you'd like to watch our episodes with video accompaniments and other sort of
1: extra material videos, uh, go to the YouTube channel, search for British Sitcom History, you'll find it. Yeah, since the last series, Alan's been putting up lots of sitcom spotlight videos, which is just a highlight reel. So, for example, we've got Fulton Mackay up there. We've got Miranda Hart. Mm. So just a quick sort of clip show of all their sitcom appearances. Yeah, which is interesting.
0: Okay, thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next time. Goodbye. Bye.